0: MSW Media.
1: This week, Attorney General Bill Barr released a redacted version of the Mueller Report. Although he refused to release the full version to Congress, Barr provided a copy to Trump's attorneys in advance. Despite the redactions, the version of the Mueller Report released by Barr paints a detailed, and damning picture of Trump, his campaign, and his associates. What can we learn from an initial look at the redacted Mueller report? What should we make of Barr's attempts to deceive the public? And what happens from here? Let's get On Topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, a WGN radio host who will join us regularly on this podcast. So, Patty, I have to tell you, um, the release of the Mueller report was absolutely insane and in multiple levels i will talk a little later about why um mr Barr's behavior the attorney general's behavior was so uh outrageous troubling would you say troubling is an uh, understatement i wrote up my column in politico it's a great piece thank you uh was i put a lot of effort into that one because i was so um i was so enraged and disturbed by his behavior But um, on another note, you know, this is a 440-something page document. And I'm going to already tell everyone up front, I have not read and digested this entire document. In other words, I'm used to reading legal documents quickly. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's one of the reasons why um, I'm usually able to quickly write Twitter threads and so forth. But this is such a dense document. There's so much there. Uh, that I think that you know, once I get some sleep, because I've been uh, on uh, on TV a lot uh, over CNN over late at night. But once I get some sleep, I- I'm going to be spending hours looking through this thing, and I'm going to probably see a lot more than I'm going to see now. Well, but we can we can talk more about that in the future. But I'm bringing all these people with different perspectives who hopefully focus on different parts of the of the report. I've certainly read a lot of it very carefully, and I've really tried to zoom in on the parts that I thought were the most important. Um, and I think there's a lot there, and there's a lot for us to discuss. This is, in, without a doubt, an important moment in American history, uh, and uh, everyone should take a look at this report very closely for themselves.
2: Well, I'll do my best, but I, uh, I do like the way you broke it down and the idea that Mueller had more than enough evidence and information, but that it, since he couldn't take... Trump, I mean, I know we're going to talk a lot about this but that that to me I think is such a great summary and explanation of how this all unfolded and why we are where we are right now.
1: Well, one thing is for is uh, I'm very certain about is that if we did not have the bar letter and all that shenanigans, uh people would have looked at this very differently. I think uh, any fair-minded person reading the obstruction section here saw a prosecutor laying out the case to charge the president. You know, I th- Matt, one conservative commentator who I disagree with on almost every issue said that he, it read to him like an impeachment referral. And I think that's, in other words, it was a referral to Congress to look at, at obstruction of justice for impeachment purposes. There's no question in my mind that Robert Mueller believed that there was a very strong case for uh, obstruction of justice. He just was trying to be as fair as possible to Donald Trump. Um, and you know, I, I think, well, we can explore that issue more at length with some of our guests, uh, but, um, I think there's a lot there and frankly, there are footnotes and just little uh, nuggets on pages that have very significant implications. I've been, uh, talking to people and you know, they'll bring up, did you see page 200 and something or 100 and something? I'm like, (laughs) Wow. (laughs) <laughs> no, I didn't even pay attention to that when in I was weeds. reading it. Yep. So um, let's bring in uh, Jennifer Rogers. Je- Jennifer was a federal prosecutor in the Southern District of New York, which many of you may have heard about. She's a CNN legal analyst, and you know she was in our preview episode for the, for, uh, the Mueller report and really had some great insights. So let's bring her in now. Welcome back, Jennifer. Thank you so much for joining us again.
3: Of course. Great to be here. So
1: I I have to say, uh, you know, I was just mentioning a moment ago that it is, this is such a dense document. There's so much here. And it's really quite a remarkable um, piece of work by the part of uh, Mr. Mueller and his team. Just at a a high level, what is your reaction to this as somebody who's uh, an experienced lawyer, former prosecutor, Um, who is looking at this document for the first time?
3: Well, I agree with you. I think that the Mueller report is basically everything that we expected it to be before Bill Barr started playing mind games with us about three weeks ago. Um, You know, it goes through uh, everything that they did. It, It puts all the evidence out there in a digestible format. It tells us what they've done with the cases that they brought referrals that they've made. It tells us why they made the decisions that they made. Uh, So I I think it's a terrific document. It it really puts everything in one place, which is so helpful for those of us trying to get our arms around what the Mueller team did here. And it explains it all in a way that I think when people can understand now that still requires them to do a lot of reading. And so most people won't. But I think they did a terrific job and a real service to the country. And I think the report is the culmination of all of that.
1: You know, it's interesting, uh, Jennifer, you mentioned the uh, mind games that Barr played. And uh, I will tell you, that was the first my first reaction to all of this. Um, We had that um, we had that uh, press conference that Barr called uh, yesterday before the uh, release of the report, um, you you know, in which he you know, he revealed that he had already given an advance copy of it to Trump's uh, attorneys, including, I believe, his personal attorneys Um, and essentially he tried to spin this, uh, for, uh, the Trump administration. I think he gave very much the party line of, um, you know, the no collusion and and so forth. he, He gave a number of statements that it turned out later to be highly, I would, I would say are highly deceptive, um, in that press conference. You know, did you have a similar reaction to that rollout that, that I did?
3: I did. I thought it was really outrageous. I mean, even sitting watching the press conference before we saw the document, you could tell that he was, you know, you know, at first I thought he was spinning. I thought that the March 24th letter you could call spinning. And of course, it's hard to say before you see what it is he's talking about. But the press conference was even a step beyond. It was like, you know, he was almost just just acting as Trump's personal attorney. I mean, taking what he said and just giving the the talking points and not a fair recitation of what it was. I mean, we even knew before, having seen the Mueller report, that it wasn't going to be what he said, because it wasn't going to be no obstruction. You know, he, even he gave us enough in his March 24th letter that we knew that wasn't going to be true. So that whole episode is so strange. And, you know, it's neither here nor there, really. But a lot of people I'm talking to are saying, why in the world would Bill Barr do this kind of come back you know, out of the private sector to take this high profile job only to kind of ruin his reputation uh, in service of this president. And, uh, you know, no one has any answers. But I think it's a really disturbing episode and also just doesn't bode well for how the Department of Justice is going to be led for the next year and a half or so, at least.
2: A lot of people want to know whether or not there is there any accountability for Barr? Is, Is there any way to impeach him?
1: there there is I mean you can impeach any executive branch official, and one question that i've been asked uh both it, by folks at c n n and by lawmakers is whether that's a potential course of action I don't think that it'll all, it'll go to the end there for the same reason that I think there aren't going to be necessarily votes in the Senate uh, to remove Donald Trump, but I think there's no question in my mind that Barr deceived the United States Senate you know he obtained that job uh, with some Democratic votes, a bipartisan uh, vote, because he promised a commitment to full transparency. There's no question that he lied, uh, in my mind, that he lied to the United States Senate about it. I mean, here's a man who still is not committed to give the full report to the House of Representatives, which has a constitutional duty to take a look at and and examine um, criminal investigations of the president. Uh, and frankly, um, for the last twenty—it was twenty-five days—we had this letter that contained a number of half-truths and misleading statements, far from uh, a commitment to transparency. Uh, but I, uh, you know, I don't think that that anything will happen to him. But as Jennifer said, his reputation is is tarnished. How do you feel about that, Jennifer?
3: Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, and the other thing that was so strange that happened that we realized as soon as we got the report was. You know, whereas Barr had said that Mueller refused to decide about the obstruction question and basically dodged the reason why. You know, people kept asking him, did he say why? And he's kind of like, oh, you know, I don't know. But that left it to me. And, of course, prosecutors have to make these decisions. So I did. And I decided there wasn't enough evidence. I mean, that is so wrong once you read the report. And I, you know, I'm sure you want to get into the substance of this. Uh, later on about the obstruction and the, the strong case that's made out there. But when you read that, you can't possibly see how someone in the attorney general's position can read that report and say, yeah, yeah, there's not enough on the merits having nothing to do with the fact that the president can't legally be prosecuted, according to DOJ. You know, it's just kind of mind boggling. And yet we're supposed to accept that prosecutorial decision that, he made, uh, not knowing nearly as much about the case as Mueller does, and having read the report, which is so damning on the obstruction question. So, you know, I just feel like on the merits of Bill Barr as leading the Justice Department as he is now, we kind of have to take everything he's doing there with a grain of salt and, and think about what his motives are.
1: Well, no question. I mean, I have to say I'm embarrassed that uh, Bill Barr is uh, my attorney general. He didn't, you know, during that press conference. He actually said at one point that Robert Mueller prepared this for me, and he did this for me, and I, uh, I, I was very upset by that because of course Robert Mueller worked for the American people, and so does Bill Barr. Um, you know, you had mentioned a moment ago, Jennifer. You know, a lot of people are wondering why he would tarnish his legacy in this way. You know, I've thought about it myself, and you know, I will say that you know, Bill Barr uh, struck me as someone who would potentially wanted to be relevant again. I mean, here's somebody who was you know an important figure, obviously. During the George uh, Herbert Walker Bush administration, that was in you know the very early '90s. It's over 20 years ago, um, and you know I, I, you know he obviously had some level of a law practice, but had enough time to write 19-page single-space memos to the administration about uh, his views on obstruction of justice. So you know I wonder if he's a character like Ty Cobb or Rudy Giuliani or John Dowd, folks who are eager to be in the mix, uh, you know, like they had been in times past.
3: Yeah, who knows? I mean, you can only hope, though, now that he's maybe regretting it, having gotten himself into this situation. And I'm sure he's seeing some of the the commentary out there about what he's doing. And hopefully it disturbs them. I mean, hopefully he takes all of this in and, and switches course a little bit. But I guess we'll have to wait and see.
1: Indeed. I, I will say, um, Jennifer, that I have seen – some of the opposite. I mean, I I was really disappointed to see some conservative, uh, uh, conservatives probably right, right, right wing commentators, you know, cheering on Barr and his performance uh, yesterday because, mm-hmm. it, it, to me, um, you know, you had mentioned a moment ago about his deception regarding obstruction. I mean, he he literally lied during the uh, press conference because he was asked by the first reporter who asked him a question whether or not. The DOJ policy regarding uh, the uh, the OLC policy regarding the indictment of a sitting president had anything to do with Mueller's non decision on obstruction, and the the clear answer is yes, it did. I mean, there they, I don't think you could escape that answer from reading the report. But he went out of his way to, in a very in a way that he could argue was technically accurate, based on some private conversation he had with Mueller, to say, well. Uh, you know it's it's it, technically it wasn 't due to the policy, but it it was very highly misleading because it, it was due to concerns arising from that policy I thought that 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 he took from you know Mueller was somebody who on that question and and we can get to this in a moment but he you know Mueller was somebody throughout this process who showed a great sense of humility and restraint uh, and Barr showed everything the opposite of that.
3: Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And it'll be interesting to see whether Mueller, when he testifies, how forthcoming he is, you know, is he upset about this turn of events? And if so, is he going to tell us that or is he continue going to continue to be, um, you know, fairly close lipped about it and, and just say what he needs to say and, and not get into that? Uh, fight, if you will, with Bill Barr. I, I'm, I'm inclined to think he won't because he doesn't seem like that kind of guy. But part of me wishes he would just take the gloves off and let him have it.
1: Uh, I I have the same view as you, uh, Jennifer, which is I'd love to have Robert Mueller say something about this, but I suspect he won't. I think he'll answer questions honestly, and if lawmakers ask him the right questions, I think he will give honest answers. You know, if he's asked about whether Barr's statements were misleading or something like that i think he will answer accurately because that's the kind of man he is he's not somebody who would not be truthful but i don't think he's going to go out of his way to one way or the other to to make any sort of a statement i guess yeah yeah you know we've been talking a lot about obstruction from my perspective that is legally the most consequential part of the report do you agree
3: I do, because, you know, you can say that the conduct of Trump and the campaign on the kind of Russian conspiracy side of things was not good. It's not what we would want. But everyone is clear that they didn't find evidence of a crime. And, you know, so that kind of is, is where it ends. That's kind of where it sits. And, um, you know, there's really no recourse even in Congress for the kind of bad behavior that we saw uh, during the campaign with respect to the Russian interference. But on the obstruction side of the House, I mean, holy moly, they set out a very strong case for obstruction of justice on at least, by my count, six or seven of the 10 episodes that they considered in the report, going through the legal elements and putting them up against the facts, basically saying, uh, yeah, all of the elements are made here. Now, they don't take the final jump and say, and therefore the president has committed a crime, because as they told us. Earlier on in the report, they weren't going to do that. But it really does leave it open for maybe a future criminal prosecution if the president doesn't win a second term and anyone has the appetite to do that for impeachment in Congress. I mean, there were crimes committed here, according to the Mueller report, in my view. And that's where it's so stunning of a document and where it's so glaringly obvious that Barr misled the American people by saying
1: there is no crime here. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Jennifer. I think your analysis as usual spot on. I, I do the reason I stressed sort of the importance of it is there have been some people who have still, but you know, some uh, whether you want to call them commentators or theorists or whatever, who've been maintaining that well, actually, the con- the conspiracy part of the reports the most important that it vindicates whatever view people had about that. I, you know, I I think. Um, it my view is exactly identical to yours, which is look. There's a lot of very troubling things in that in that part of the report because there's two parts of the report. Um, but as a legal matter, um, you know, there's nothing that establishes a crime. And really, and and I'm ha- and I want to have you sort of w- walk through why you felt there was strong evidence and how what exactly Mueller sets out on obstruction, but that's where all of the legal action is and will be likely in the in the weeks and months to come.
2: Before we go on to the obstruction, though, I do have to ask, because uh, some of the listeners have been posting about this, and I'm curious, too, because let's say, like, for example, the the Trump Tower meeting where the Crown Prosecutor of Russia offered to provide the Trump campaign with some official documents and information that would incriminate Hillary Clinton... Didn't lead to any prosecutions, not because it wasn't illegal, but because the government would unlikely be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the June 9th meeting participants had general knowledge that their conduct was unlawful. So ignorance of the law is the reason why they felt that they couldn't prosecute? So, you
1: know, it's it's only in very specific areas of the law. So tax law and campaign finance law are areas where you have to know that you're doing something that violates what's called a known legal duty. Um, and the reason why I think about it, Patty, let's say you're you're in your taxes. You have a statement that uh, you make a statement that turns out to be false. Like, do you want to go to prison uh, for that? Even if, you know, it's some arcane thing in the tax laws. The idea is that in some of these arcane areas of law, we have a higher bar. Is that but, it, would you agree, but, Jennifer? OK, go ahead. Sorry.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's what's called a specific intent crime. You know, you have to know more than just in the average case. You have to know more than it's just kind of a generally wrong thing to do. You have to know that it's actually against the law. And, and you know, that's because it doesn't necessarily occur to people that it's illegal to accept something of value in a campaign from a foreign source. Um, and also, the other thing is, campaign finance law, is it's not something that's charged very often criminally. Those matters are usually resolved civilly um, or by the campaign just correcting it uh, on its own um, or after consultation with the FEC. So this just isn't an area of criminal law that's very well developed, but as I, I read, there aren't cases that this kind of thing of value has been uh, settled as a contribution. So, while you can say, sure, it's a value to the campaign to get opposition uh, research or dirt on your opponent, that hasn't been in a published criminal case used as the thing of value that's required by the statute. So, it was another hurdle for them. I think they just thought this would really be a, a reach, a very aggressive prosecution, and, and they didn't think they could bring it.
1: Very uh, spot on by Jennifer. One thing I would just add, just to help people understand. That the crime here is would be that you're knowing you're you're you are accepting money from a foreign national, and here in the money. When I say money, you know, as Jennifer points out, that it's contribution, and here it's unclear whether like you know dirt that you don't end up even gets, you know, un sort of unnamed vague dirt is in fact a contribution because it may not have even existed, but. To give an example that would be more more uh, typical, you could imagine a campaign in which somebody is, accepts a check from somebody who's uh, a, a resident or a citizen of the UK or a citizen of Canada and then realize that, that that they are not able to accept a thousand dollars from a Canadian citizen. Did that person commit a felony? that's why there's a willfulness requirement that requires that they did something that's against the law in that context. And Jennifer's right that those crimes are often not charged uh, criminally. We've had episodes where we've talked a lot about campaign finance law and in another context in the Southern District of New York case. But I think, you know, one thing that you said, Jennifer, I thought that was very valuable is you talked about how aggressive that case would be. And I think part of the part of the point here is not to treat, let's say in this case, Donald Trump Jr. differently than we would treat other types of defendants. And that was the same impulse that Comey had with Hillary Clinton. In other words, we don't usually prosecute people. We never had at that point prosecuted anybody for for inadvertently mishandling classified material. We shouldn't start doing that for the first time with Hillary Clinton.
3: That's right. And I think it kind of dovetails with the way that the Mueller team has handled this whole investigation. They've been um, you know, conservative, not in the political sense, but in the legal sense, in terms of being cautious with the cases they brought. Every case was very, very strong and based on sound legal theories that have been used over and over again. So it just kind of goes in with the mix of how they've treated everything.
1: I agree with you. You know, and that's something that I think kind of really dovetails into our obstruction piece of this. Because, you know, in my column that I wrote about the uh, Barr's deception and the obstruction piece of this, which I thought I agree with you is very strong, you know, I talk about how Mueller showed great restraint, humility, and fair play in how he dealt with the president uh, on the issue of obstruction of justice. You know, ultimately what Mueller said was, well, you know, since he can't charge the president— he was not going to reach a legal conclusion because of fairness concerns that he had. Those are the exact words, fairness concerns, because his his concern was, you know, ordinarily if one of my clients, for example, is indicted with something, I can go to court and we can challenge it, we can have various motions, so we can go have a speedy trial, public trial, and potentially win. Um, but, you know, Trump wouldn't have that uh, opportunity. I wouldn't have come to the same conclusion, I would think that, you know, he would have a trial in the Senate, and that's what a president deserves. But I respect Robert Mueller for having a sense of humility and fair play. I don't think I would ever criticize a prosecutor for that. And I've been surprised to see some people highly critical. Uh, Ron Klein is one, but there have been others highly critical of Robert Mueller for having that sense of humility and restraint. How do you come out on that?
3: Yeah, it's really interesting because I, along with many others, was just. I didn't know why he wouldn't reach a conclusion. It didn't make any sense to me. And I thought if it was because of the OLC opinion, then he would just say, listen, I can't bring these charges, and that's why I didn't. But let me tell you why I would have and could have, and here's why the evidence shows that a crime was committed. And it just it didn't really occur to me, to be honest, because I just thought, you know they're going to lay it all out and we're going to know the answer one way or the other um but having read it and thought about it for a bit you know, i don't know that i would have done it that way but i also respect that decision I, I feel like there is a fairness component to that now on the flip side is it fair that the president gets a pass while he's the president you know he's the only person in america who can't be charged with the conduct that we now know he has committed Um, But if you put that aside for the moment, it would put a huge cloud over the presidency to say, listen, the president committed a crime, and he can be charged the moment he leaves office, but he can't be charged now, and so let's all just live with that for the rest of his tenure. And so I I see why he did what he did. Um, The problem with it is it still feels just a little misleading, because when you read the report. I come to the conclusion that there is a crime there and that the Mueller team thought so, um, and yet he didn't go so far as to say it. So we're kind of left in the little bit of this gray area that allows the president and his supporters to say things that I think are not really accurate, right? That he's been exonerated, that there is no crime. And that includes Bill Barr, who shockingly on the evidence that he saw before him, and also by the way, without any explanation at all, tells us that there isn't enough evidence, which is just crazy to me because, and I I don't think that he's planning on giving us any more on that. I mean, maybe he will in testimony, but I wouldn't anticipate any more written documents. But after this, you know, 400 and some page report, he just tells us, oh, and by the way, there wasn't enough evidence without kind of tackling point by point. You know, here's why, even though the Mueller team spells it all out for you, here's why this piece of evidence doesn't suffice. Here's why this element isn't met. We don't have any of that to try to make sense of what Bill Barr
1: has done. Yeah, it's an excellent point, Jennifer. I agree with you. And, you know, what? really the letter, in in retrospect, is very highly misleading. You know, he talks about Mueller laying out evidence on both sides. He doesn't put any evidence on the other side. In other words, Mueller doesn't say, here's, you know, walk through, here's all this evidence that that uh, Trump didn't uh, obstruct justice on these points. I mean, he'll occasionally talk about the sufficiency of the evidence, but there's not really evidence on both sides that's laid out. I think that was a highly misleading, if not false statement. Another false statement by Barr was essentially where he says that Mueller did not come to a conclusion on obstruction due to, quote, Difficult issues of law and fact. I will tell you in my when I was previewing the Mueller report and said, "What am I going to be looking for?" I focused on what the what possible difficult issues of fact there were because I had concluded a year ago that that uh, Trump had obstructed justice. I'm trying to figure out what are the difficult issues of fact. It turns out, when you look at this, Mueller wasn't grappling with difficult issues of fact. That was pure deception. And really, because as you mentioned, Jennifer, because. Um, Mueller didn't reach a conclusion. I mean, there's a very perverse uh, effect here. You know, Mueller in the report says that if Congress and he lays out and explains why Congress needs to be able to uh, he kind of debunks Barr's theory that none of this could be obstruction of justice for legal reasons and says that Congress has to be able to enforce this type of obstruction of justice because if it couldn't do that, the president would be above the law. But I think that because Mueller didn't reach a conclusion, there is an element to which Trump is above the law and really bars deception uh, played into that. Because, as you point out, there's an element of vagueness here. I mean, I was on, on the air this morning on CNN. Arguing very aggressive. I mean, uh, David Gregory and I had a full b- blown argument on the air because he was saying there's there's no evidence of obstruction, no evidence of, you know, I'm like, that's not what the report says. That's, it, there's, it, there's clearly a case of obstruction of justice that was made here. And Robert Mueller didn't make it because the man is the president of the United States. And that that is e- uh, unfortunately easily obscured.
3: Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I think we know why Barr claimed that Mueller struggled with difficult issues of fact, it's because he didn't want to just say that the issues here were legal issues, right? Because he doesn't want the American mm-hmm. people to know that the president is escaping prosecution just because he's the president. So instead, he wants to tell us, yeah, oh, yeah, lots of evidence on both sides, very tough. You know, Mueller couldn't reach a decision. Well, as you said, that's not what the report says. And, you know, he does say here and there, there are a couple of the episodes of obstruction where you know, he says, you know, oh, there's not quite enough, or what have you, um, like on the, the the Trump Tower meeting, right. cover up stuff. But um, for the most part, he finds that all three elements that he goes through are met. And so, you know, yeah, that was very uh, misleading by Barr. And, you know, I, I really just can't wait for them to get Barr back. I mean, Mueller will be interesting, but I think, you know, Barr will be more interesting. If you get some good questioners, and that's always the question with these yeah. congressional hearings, but, man, they could rip them to shreds over this stuff.
1: I'm uh, I'm available to write more questions. I was hoping you should. Um, I'm curious, Jennifer. You know, could you uh, help our listeners and walk through a little bit why? You know, we're we're talking about the fact that you and I have both agree that the obstruction case is laid out as to at least a number of the episodes. Very strongly, it appears uh, from the report that the Mueller and his team concluded there was obstruction. Can you kind of walk through that a little bit? Explain that to 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 all of us. So yeah, so
3: they they name. 10 kind of factual incidences that they then they kind of recite the evidence that they uncovered in the investigation. And then for each of those, they go through the three important legal elements of obstruction. They consider whether there was an obstructive action, they then consider whether there was a nexus between that action and a judicial proceeding which is what's required by the statute and finally they consider whether the president had the the necessary intent the intent to obstruct the judicial proceeding and for for many of these things they determined that the answer was yes and they don't explicitly say that they just in each of those three sections conclude that there was evidence or sometimes they say substantial evidence that For example, there was an obstructive action or the president had the necessary intent. And some of the ones that that seemed the strongest to me were Jim Comey's firing, um, the efforts to remove the special counsel. Remember all of that detailed stuff with Don McGahn being told over and over he needed to fire the special counsel and he was refusing and that whole episode. This uh, new factual incident with Corinne Lewandowski trying to uh, get Jeff Sessions to end the special counsel investigation. Um, the uh, efforts to get Sessions to unrecuse and take over the investigation again, again for the purpose of curtailing it. Um, and then the, the things that I think maybe you're getting a little bit lost in the mix here, but shouldn't because I think they're really important and really demonstrate how bad an actor the president was in all of this is the witness related stuff. You know, his conduct with respect to Michael Flynn and Paul Manafort and Roger Stone, although Stone's name is redacted, uh, and Michael Cohen, where he is using kind of his pardon powers, but also just generally other things to try to say when they seem like they're in trouble to kind of keep them on, you know, Team Trump Oh, stay strong, stay strong. And then, you know, when they leave, as Michael Cohen did, all of a sudden he's on the attack and he's a rat and all of this all with an eye towards influencing their testimony out of judicial proceedings. So those are Uh another area where the special counsel found uh, that the elements were met.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great summary. There was definitely some interesting new factual detail. I thought the Lewandowski piece was very interesting. Here is where essentially Trump is trying to use Corey Lewandowski, who at that point had no role, official role, It's sort of a back channel to Jeff Sessions who was recused from the Mueller investigation trying to convince Jeff Sessions to shut it all down or to direct it only towards future elections, the Russia investigation into future elections, which, of course, was not the point. The point was to look at what Russia did in the 2016 election. And then also, as you point out, the witness tampering. And I have to say some of the stuff that I thought was really interesting there was the behavior of the attorneys. I mean, one one comment I made yesterday yesterday. Uh, Was that it? Appeared to me that some of Trump's attorneys needed their own attorneys, and what I meant by that is yeah, I
3: saw that. Are you surprised though, really?
1: (laughs) You know, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing. It it be, you know, I'm not surprised because we already had heard about their behavior with Manafort. In other words, Mm -hmm. Jennifer, I was so shocked when we heard about that because I look just like you I've been involved in a lot of different investigations I've done it on both sides I've been on the defense side too and and I am now on on various investigations I've never heard of a situation where you're going to a cooperator and getting them to report back to you everything the prosecutor says under the guise mm-hmm. of a joint defense agreement when the guy's cooperating so once that happened I'm like yeah these guys will basically do anything and so I wasn't that surprised but man I mean some of this uh you know texting uh, uh, Cohen after he lies and basically being like, the boss is happy with you. Uh, the, the the episode with Flynn's uh, lawyer where they're like, you know, we want to know what, you're, what you got on the president, what you're telling uh, the prosecutors, and, uh, you know, this is going to be regarded as a hostile act if you don't. I mean, it was really uh, shocking stuff that, frankly, uh, bar associations should take a look at.
3: Yeah, it's a little like the uh, the old La Cosa Nostra cases that uh, I used to do at Southern District. It's really ham-handed um, and ridiculous. And I mean, going back to the Corey Lewandowski thing, one of the things that the special counsel's report uh, pointed out when they are analyzing the president's intent is, you know, one thing you can tell is he he at first was just going straight to justice, and then his people were like, you know, you really can't do that. You don't want to be perceived as trying to influence them so he purposely goes outside of the white house right and recruits corey lewandowski who's in the private sector so when you think about the president's intent you know it's like one way is kind of blocked to him so then he thinks of another way to do it where it'll be more surreptitious more undercover you know that's how you show intent right it's the circumstantial evidence of kind of hiding what you're doing and and you know losing access to one way and, and finding another roundabout way and so the, the report is very clever about pointing those things out. And, and those are the sorts of things, as you know, Renato, really resonate with a jury when you can point something out and say, hey, look, he was blocked in this way. And so he went around and you can see the jurors kind of nodding and saying, yeah, you know, I, I get that. That's right. That's the sort of thing that the report does that I think really kind of uh, helps the the lay reader kind of, kind of grasp these concepts.
1: Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, I had always thought, it's been over a year now that I've been convinced that The Trump obstructed justice just based on what we knew publicly. uh, Now there's the, the additional detail to me. What it does is it really cuts the legs out from under any potential defense you could have in front of a jury. In other words, look, I try cases in front of juries. Now I had a trial against the Justice Department just a week ago. And it would be really hard for me to try this case in front of a jury because, you know, some of the stuff like, you know, one argument that Barr tried to make in the letter, which I think is totally undercut by the details in the report, is, well, Trump knew that there was nothing to... The uh, a collusion case, so that you know somehow goes to his intent. But you know, if you read the report, he's basically Trump's like, Look, I'm aft. He totally thought his his presidency was over, he had very strong motivations. And Mueller makes the correct argument there that that is enough uh, to give him a motivation, he doesn't need to have to know that the um, you know, that there was some underlying crime or anything like that. And just some of the detail, like you just mentioned a moment ago, how he tries to go through official channels and then finds this back channel through, you know, I think whatever he may have. been, I think CNN contributor Corey Lewandowski or whatever. Right. Uh, right? Uh, to try to obstruct justice. I, I think that that's just it's very hard for a jury if they're looking at all of this together uh, in one case to not conclude that there's something really effed, uh about what the president is doing. I just think. You, you can make whatever kind of legal arguments you know, Dershowitz or Barr want to make, but a jury would just look at this and I think have no trouble convicting on these facts.
3: Yeah, and this was another area where Barr was so, so misleading in the way that he characterized how the special counsel considered this issue of, you know, with no underlying crime, how does that impact the president's intent? And, you know, Barr basically suggested, oh, this is a real non-starter. You know, once you realize there's no underlying crime, you know, game over. And that's what the special counsel thought. And, you know, the special counsel did not think that. And the New York Times did a nice kind of side-by-side of Barr's, you know, snippet from the letter and then what the special counsel actually said. And there's this very long paragraph where he says, you know, listen, it does mean you have to look for other motives. If there's no underlying crime, then you have to think about why the president would want to commit this obstructive act. But there are tons of other reasons, right? Other motives that they had, including public perceptions of things and personal reasons for wanting to do this and all of that. And that clearly was at play when you read the the factual recitations in the Mueller report. So, you know, I thought that was another area where, uh, Muller really, you know, hammered it, <laughs> hammered the point home, uh, but Barr misled us about
1: it. Yeah. So, you know, just to pivot for a minute and talk a little bit about some of the steps to come. You know, one uh, bone of contention the day before the report was released was why isn't Nadler pushing for a subpoena right now? And I, and I thought I, I was defending Nadler. I know Lawrence Tribe and others were on the other side of that, but um, you know, it seemed to me that. Um, you know Now Nadler has issued a subpoena for the entire Mueller report and the underlying evidence. Um, and I think he's on very, very firm constitutional ground, given that they have the House has an impeachment role. He's got jurisdiction over impeachment uh, as the chair of the Judiciary Committee. Um, and I thought he was really smart to wait for Barr to commit to not give Congress everything. Um, I mean, he now Barr has said that he's only going to give them redacted versions of the report. Um, I'm curious what your thought is about how that litigation is going to play out.
3: Yeah, it's hard to say. You know, to be honest, I I haven't done congressional subpoena litigation. Um, So I I don't know so much about how the court will view that as opposed to, you know, the kind of subpoena that that we deal with all the time. Um, I mean, I think Congress has a, a very strong argument that they should get it. And, you know, the nice thing is. We already know that Barr refused to uh, agree to go to court to seek release of the grand jury materials restricted by Rule 6E. So now they can kind of do it all in one fell loop right? You, you, you go to court to try to enforce your subpoena, which, of course, he will refuse to comply with. And at the same time, you know, you can argue to the judge why these materials should be released. Um, so, I mean, I think they have good cause to get it. I don't know how there can be an argument that Congress isn't Capable of, of keeping the things confidential that need to be confidential and that sort of thing. I mean, you can say that Congress leaks like a sieve all you want, but that's not really going to carry the day, I don't think, in a, a legal litigation about what Congress is entitled to have in this matter of such importance to the nation. So I, I assume they'll win that litigation, and that at this point it's really just a delay, delay tactic, and they just kind of hope that they can kick the can down the road long enough so that. The the public's uh, appetite is less than it is now, and, and, you know, people will be paying even less attention than they are now.
1: I I agree with you, Jennifer. I do think that that's what Barr's uh, motives are. I I don't see any way in which a court's going to say that the executive branch can selectively hide portions of a criminal investigation of the president from the House of Representatives. I I, just—I refuse to believe that we've reached the point in this country where our judiciary would allow that to to happen— um, but I do think that, you know, the judiciary often wants to punt on issues uh, where there's a, a political squabble between different branches of government. And I, I did like the fact that uh, that uh, Nadler uh, made sure the issue was fully ripe uh, and uh, where there could be no dispute that there was clearly, um, uh, you know, a, a, a decision by the executive branch not to release information to him. I, I wonder... Going forward now, there's obviously been some debate about how Congress should go going forward. There was a comment by Steny Hoyer uh, and then, um, uh, uh, you know, saying that um, impeachment uh, essentially was unwise. Uh, We heard um, Ocasio-Cortez say she's signing an impeachment resolution. And then uh, Nancy Pelosi's kind of left the door open. I'm just curious um, if you have any thoughts about. Um, where, where we go from here, what people can expect, because I think a lot of listeners are wondering what all of this means.
3: Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't know, obviously, what the House will do. That's a political question. I mean, I'm sure Nancy Pelosi, as much as she personally, would love to impeach the president, obviously, is thinking about the politics and the 2020 election. And so she doesn't seem to be on board. Obviously, we know it's a no-go in the Senate. Um, so that's just a, a calculation they'll have to make. Um, you know, I, I'm wondering how this testimony will go. You know, they're going to haul ball up Barr up there. They're going to have Mueller come in. I'm wondering if Barr is going to issue anything else. You know, what's he going to say about this conclusion that he made that there was no obstruction on the facts we have. I'm wondering if uh, the President uh, and his lawyers are going to release the counter report that they were supposedly drafting like mad. You know, we haven't seen any any of that. So you know this could continue to to play out, and um, at the same time, I I guess there was a poll from two days ago that like 54% of the people polled thought that Congress should just move on. So you know, kind of all those things kind of point in uh, in different directions. But um, I I don't know. I just don't. I, I can't read the political winds well enough to know whether it's smart or not. You get the feeling in your gut that this president ought to be impeached for what he's done. Um, and certainly the legal case is, is more than strong enough to impeach him. Uh, but, you know, whether that's smart or not for the Dems going into 2020, that's uh, that's what I don't know.
1: Yeah, I I respect your approach on that. I I, have the, I would say basically the same thing, Jennifer, which is there's clearly a legal base, basis to impeach the president. I really don't have a lot of doubt that, if you put me in front of a jury, I could prove based on this evidence that he obstructed justice to a jury. What this means for impeachment, I don't know because of the political realities that are beyond my expertise or yours. I, reading the minds of Republican senators or the or public opinion or so forth. Um, one thing I will say though is, you know, there's still been a lot of uh, questions that that people have had about. Oh, well, there'll be other lawsuits, other investigations, other indictments that are going to have some major impact on the Trump presidency. I don't know what is redacted here, these different matters that have been spun off. But but there was a lot of questions about that. And one thing I would just – my view to listeners, and I'll be interested in yours before we wrap up, is I would not uh, sit at home and expect that some lawyer somewhere – is going to come out and just and make the 2020 election a non-issue for for everyone. In other words, don't don't sit back at home and expect that some lawyer is going to come in and save America for you. You're going to actually have to get off your butts and uh, <laughs> vote and get involved and organize and do all the things that you would ordinarily do to try to win an election. I would not expect that to happen. I'm curious what your view is, Jennifer.
3: Yeah, I mean, so so the redacted ongoing investigations are interesting, um, but 12, I think, of them, almost all of them, are in the category of matters that, that came up during the special counsel's investigation but were not within their mandate, and so they, you know, punted those. So those are not likely to be super interesting because they don't pertain to the Russian interference and the campaign's involvement or obstruction in that realm so those i think are going to be kind of more random here and there and then you know there's one that is um a matter of ongoing uh investigation that has to do with manafort and the money that he got from ukraine back in the day so you know that also i think is is unlikely to be a blockbuster when it's revealed so i agree i wouldn't expect there to be anything to blow the top off of anything i don't think don jr is going to be indicted or, or anything like that and frankly even if he was i don't know that that uh takes down this presidency or anything right given what we've already seen people are just uh, shrugging off so I agree with you, you know, get out the vote. <laughs> that's what we need for 2020. It's, it's not going to be uh, the the redacted portions of the Mueller report.
1: Well, Jennifer, thank you. I think that's a great message. Uh, and frankly, I really appreciate your sort of careful and thoughtful approach to all of this. Thank you for breaking this down with us. You know, uh, there's been a lot, there's a lot to go through. And at least this is a very good first take that I hope will help people get a sense of some of the legal issues that we're Uh, all looking at in this report.
3: Yeah, it's really fun to talk it through, and I I think your uh, views are are terrific and align with mine, and it's fun to bounce these off each other, and uh, I appreciate you inviting me on.
1: Our next guest needs absolutely no introduction because she was the recent guest host of On Topic, Uh, Asha Rancafa, who is a former FBI counterintelligence agent, current uh, uh, professor at Yale Yale University, and, of course, my former classmate and a CNN legal analyst and national security analyst. Welcome back, Asha.
0: Thanks, Renato. Thanks for having me on.
1: So Asha, I have spent all this time talking with Jennifer Rogers about part two of um, the Mueller report. And I got to say, it it seems a little backwards in a way because the entire investigation was really spurred by uh, initially by a desire to, uh, you know, learn the answers to part one. And I, I think most of our listeners questions are about part one of the report, which deals with. Uh, you know, coordination and or collusion or conspiracy with Russia. And I think it's kind of maybe as a starting point, I'd be interested in, you know, you explaining to us sort of what, how Mueller tackled that concept of collusion, because, of course, that's not a concept that has legal meaning in criminal law.
0: That's right. And he acknowledges that explicitly in the report. What he says is the word collusion does not have Legal meaning under the U.S. Code. And so he says that he is approaching these actions uh, from the point of view of criminal law. And he's looking at two things. One is conspiracy, which is an agreement to commit a crime and would also require uh, an overt act in furtherance of that crime. And he looks at something slightly below that. He also looks at something that he calls coordination, but he defines coordination very strictly, that it would be uh, a tacit or express agreement uh, between two people. And I think that this is really important because what it means is that the entire framework for part one of this report is holding – the, the bar for what he is defining as, um, you know, coordinated activity or conspiracy is this very high bar, which requires, as you know, Renato, from, from being a prosecutor, it, it requires states of mind that involve knowledge and intent, um, you know, things that are expressly agreed upon. And in my experience as a counterintelligence agent, that is not typically how foreign intelligence services operate. And so I think we also need to review what the, the behaviors that he finds, the actions, and understand the significance of them from a national security perspective as well.
1: Yeah, I think that's a very valuable way to frame this, Asha, because uh, I will just say from the perspective of somebody who has tried a lot of conspiracy cases and indicted a lot of conspiracy cases, what you have to have is an agreement to commit a crime and so the two of you have to have a mutual understanding regarding what a crime what crime the two of you are going to commit together and you don't have to each be involved in every piece of it but you each have to have at least some role in committing that offense and agree to do that and that can be hard to prove i mean my last uh jury trial the judge threw out the conspiracy charge mid-trial given my cross of their Cooperator. It can be hard to establish a criminal conspiracy amongst people who are committing a bank robbery or doing a drug deal or something like that. So uh, the idea that you're going to have the Russian government and a candidate uh, for president or a campaign for president, and you're going to prove a conspiracy there on its face is, is a very high bar. Uh, and, you know, my sense of things, and you may have a better sense than I am, is that his view of coordination – Uh, Also, you know, you were talking about an agreement as well. It's very close to, at least the way Mueller defined it, it seemed very close to criminal conspiracy. He was setting a very high bar there. And so, you know, I have used, you know, I don't really know what to make a collusion. Frankly, I wish the term would go away from my perspective as a lawyer. Uh, But, you know, I've kind of said, well, Mueller didn't find anything about collusion. A lot of people have been saying to me, well, he found a lot about collusion, but not really conspiracy. And I think a lot of this is a semantics in terms of what you are expecting or understanding collusion to mean.
0: That's right. So let's also just break down a couple of other things about part one of the report and how Mueller is framing it. He does identify two specific crimes. So the first is the Russian social media and disinformation campaign, uh, which was waged through the Internet Research Agency. This is Russia's troll farm. Um, And these involve 13 individuals and three Russian companies that were indicted. Uh, They are litigating this in court right now the other was the hack of the DNC server and that for that crime 12GRU Russian military officers were indicted and so really what what he's looking at is you know that would be the underlying crime and was there any explicit agreement between members of the Trump campaign to uh, to assist in committing those specific crimes. And you have two problems there. The first is that both of those operations, the social media and disinformation and the hacking, you know, they are covert operations. So when when governments engage in covert operations, particularly you know, through their spy services, they are also do, trying to do something called uh, have plausible deniability. So they're trying to leave their government fingerprints off of it. uh, So they can't be identified as being behind it, which means that, you know, it's even harder to to the extent that any Americans, let's let's even leave the Trump campaign out of it, were assisting them. It is going to be very far removed. They were going to be using intermediaries and cutouts and people in between WikiLeaks figures in here um, to kind of facilitate their dirty work. So. What I would say about collusion is I think we should think about collusion as a set of behaviors. Um, If we are looking at this from a counterintelligence perspective, was there encouragement of Russia's activities? Was there any facilitating of it? Was there a receptiveness to it? Um, Was there a willingness to benefit from it? Um, All of these, in my opinion, would constitute collusive behavior, even if it does not meet the criminal standard to agree to commit the exact crimes with the Russian government, um, which is the standard that Mueller is using.
1: Yeah. I, um, you know, one thing that's been helpful to me, I've learned a lot over the course of the past year or so learning from people like you and John Seifer about how, intelligence services operate, because that's something that's beyond my expertise entirely, uh, is that there's a, an element of plausible deniability, right? In other words... Yes. Yeah. That's, you know, you, you've you talked a lot about that, Asha, and I've learned about that from you, and that really cuts against proof of a conspiracy. It's very hard when you're putting in inter- these intermediaries. You know, for instance, you know, Mueller talks a lot about conspiring with the Russian government. Well, what about with WikiLeaks? I mean, a lot of the stuff that's redacted here is related to Bruce Stone's conversations with WikiLeaks. And I thought one of the more interesting revelations in part one that I noticed was that the Trump campaign was aware of future WikiLeaks releases and was planning their strategy around those. So, you know, to a lot of folks, that's basically what they thought of as collusion. That's what they were looking for. Uh, the, you know, I think the, the misunderstanding there was on the legal standard.
0: I think that's right. And remember that the CIA has identified WikiLeaks as an intelligence arm, a non-state intelligence actor of the Russian government. Now, there's no reason that the Trump campaign would necessarily know that or care. Um, But in dealing with WikiLeaks, from a criminal standpoint, they're not officially dealing with the government, you know, so there's no conspiracy with the Russian government. But as you just mentioned, Renato, it's still problematic if you know that this entity, wherever it is, has stolen information from your, uh, you know, competitor, and is, and you are actually, as you mentioned, strategizing with that entity to weaponize that information in ways that distort the information space to your in your favor. Um, I would say that that's, that's coordinating um, and that's collusion. And, you know, whether or not it was knowingly with Russia, I mean, I think that Trump saying, hey, Russia, if you're, if you're listening and you have those 30,000 emails, it seems to me that they had some awareness that Russia also had an interest in this, but it was from a distance. So they're dancing from a distance. Um, and I think that that should still be concerning to us uh, regardless of, you know, you know, if if it can meet this this high criminal bar.
2: I, I assume when you talk about that, when, he, you know, at that uh, rally, he said, come on, Russia, hack her emails or get, you know, get more information. I'm assuming that that's easily dismissed as, well, that's just Trump saying random things and, you know, being gregarious in his way.
0: Well, well except that in the report, Patty, Mueller actually details that as that he, he details that statement that Trump made and notes that five hours later the GRU attempted to hack mm-hmm. uh into Hillary's email. So, you know, g- g- one of the things that you learn in intelligence is there really aren't a lot of coincidences um and definitely when you start to see them pop up over and over and over again, it probably doesn't it means that it's not a coincidence. So, you know, I don't think that 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 you know, he just happened to it happened to just come out of his mouth, and he said that, and then they're they're do they they do it that very day. Um, to me, that seems significant.
1: You know, it's interesting um, to to go to that episode. I had a lot of journalists asking me pretty early on in the Russia investigation, sort of behind the scenes. Well, what what does it matter legally if the Trump campaign knew about what Russia was doing and was like cheering them on? Or what about if they knew what they were doing, but they were just trying to encourage it in some way uh, or they were trying to get messages to them? And I I said in all those circumstances that that wouldn't be sufficient to charge a crime. And I wonder if now, in retrospect, if those journalists knew more than than they were letting on to me. In other words, if they were sort of talking to their sources and saying, well, and hearing from them that that's basically what the evidence was going to ultimately show. Um, I, I will say that. You know, when when it comes down to it, to me, um, all of this uh, is very troubling from a national security perspective. You know, one thing that you and John had talked about when we discussed the counterintelligence investigation earlier, uh, Asha, was about how even if somebody is not a controlled asset, but as an unwitting participant or as compromised in some way by Russia, that that can have a very significant impact on our national security. And to me, I think that's the appropriate lens with which to view part one.
0: Yes, absolutely. And in many ways, an unwitting asset can potentially be more dangerous than a witting asset, right? So a witting asset is someone who is actually being controlled and tasked. And so, you know, you you definitely have that interaction, but there's also a, a certain level of you know, conscious awareness of what you're doing um, on on the part of the asset. You know, an unwitting asset um, is valuable to to Russia because they can do it from a distance. They can manipulate the strings. They can dangle money. They can offer praise. They can, you know— with a wink and a nod say hey you know we we have the goods on you and what if you know it would be really super sad if you know your tax returns just ended up online for example i mean i'm just giving this as a hypothetical but like you know to to um exploit someone's fear of exposure or humiliation for example um and when you're when you're using emotional uh puppeteering like that um that's really you know working someone's own vulnerabilities, um, they are not really acting at a conscious level. And so, you know, I think that it's more dangerous because it could just be that Trump at this point um, has kind of been lured in, and is is really willing to p- place Russia's interests over those of the United States, and I think I think we've seen that in Helsinki. We've seen that with him say, suggesting bizarrely in 2017 that he wanted to create a cyber partnership with Russia, slow rolling sanctions, uh, lifting sanctions on Oleg Deripaska. I mean, it, you know, the list goes on and on of his bizarre behavior that is really inconsistent with our traditional foreign policy. And I think that it's it's happening because, you know, Putin knows how to play him.
1: So uh, one thing I wonder about is, is there going to be another report like a counterintelligence report that goes to Congress? I always thought that there was supposed to be some sort of counterintelligence set of findings that were going to also come out of this investigation.
0: Well, I. I I think that we will see counterintelligence findings, and here's why I think we didn't see them here. So as you know, Renato, the special counsel regulations uh, spell out very clearly what the special counsel uh, is responsible for at the end of the investigation. And one is this confidential report, but these regulations are really written contemplating a criminal investigation. So the, the final report that's required of the special counsel is about listing the the decisions to prosecute and the declinations to prosecute um, uh, individuals that were investigated uh, during the the course of it. Um, so it's really kind of th- this report is clearly a criminal report. There there has to be counterintelligence findings. I mean, we know that they were dealing with what Mm -hmm. Russia, a foreign intelligence service, was doing. We know that there was a counterintelligence investigation opened on the president himself. We know that there were FISA orders. These are all a part of counterintelligence investigations. They would not be criminal investigations if they're using those kinds of techniques um, and that those were garnering foreign intelligence um, because they were renewed multiple times. So somewhere this – those the, the the fruits of those investigations are collected somewhere. I don't know if they've been compiled in a report, but they form a huge backdrop to the report that we're seeing right now, um, because it will detail exactly what Russia was doing, who they were contacting, how they were doing it, um, all of those things. And I think the question there's an open question. Um I, I don't doubt the public will will see that or definitely not soon because so much of it's classified. But I think mm-hmm. that the intelligence committees can get to it directly. Um, and I think for that reason, mm-hmm. Mueller was smart to not actually include them, even if he had the latitude to because then it would be under Barr's thumb.
1: Yeah, I sp- I've spoken to one <laughs> lawmaker since the report was released who was most interested in the counterintelligence findings, and that was really that person's focus. And I think that um, you know it really poses a question of where do you go from here with that? In other words, let's say that there are very disturbing counterintelligence findings. what do you do with that? In other words, you know, we have a mechanism under our constitution for dealing with high crimes and misdemeanors. What do you do when there's, let's say, a president or somebody around a president? who is compromised in some way. You know, what is the remedy for that? A very interesting problem.
0: Well, I think, I mean, I think that of all the high crimes and misdemeanors um, that would warrant removal from office, foreign influence would be at the top of the list. I mean, this was a motivating and animating concern of the framers of the Constitution. Um, There are multiple provisions that, you know, being a natural-born citizen, the emoluments clause, all of these things, and and it came up in, in, uh, in, the convention, it's in the Federalist Papers, this fear that this new democracy might come under the sway of a foreign power that is kind of trying to, and the Electoral College, for example, is also designed to protect that. Um, So I would say that, you know, I think, I think the challenge is going to be that if there is evidence that there is, um, whether it's Trump or other people involved in the administration are compromised, um, how do we make that available in a way that does not compromise uh, sensitive methods and sources? And I would say, most importantly, human sources uh, that might be in places where they have literally put their lives on the line um, to to provide intelligence to our intelligence services. Um, I think that that is the challenge.
1: Uh, yeah, I, th- I have to say that's one thing that I think is a, a significant issue here is w- we have to make sure that we protect classified sources and methods. But at the same time, you have these issues of intense public concern. How could there even be a debate about, for example... Whether or not to remove the president of the United States, when no one can publicly talk about why that might be or how we exactly we, yeah, very difficult <laughs> to me. These are really unprecedented problems uh, for our democracy to have, uh, and we I think at this point is one of the remaining questions that I think is really unknown. In other words, there was some reason that gave the intelligence community uh, a reason to to launch a counterintelligence investigation of the president of the United States. I do think rightfully so that is being questioned by people. In other words, I think that it is important. I think that is that is such an extraordinary step that people should be questioning why that was opened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that can be done in a classified setting, in a controlled setting. But then the question is, you know, what what the outcome of that is and how do you let people know one way or the other? And frankly, I would be happy to hear if if Trump isn't compromised by the Russians, um, even though obviously there are some signs that he, he very well may be. Uh, but, um, you know, how we make that available to the public and in what context and what do we tell, tell everyone, I think is a very tricky question to answer.
0: Yes. Um, Completely. And I actually think that Paul Manafort will be a, you know, the, the counterintelligence findings on him will be very important. I mean, one of the things that the Mueller report, the first part does note is that he was passing polling data to Konstantin Kalimnik um, and sending who, who by the way, is for your listeners, is, is a person affiliated with the Russian intelligence. Um, and what Mueller says is we were unable to ascertain the purpose of that. Um, now, uh, you and I can have take some guesses. I mean, I think that polling data is really relevant to understanding wh- where voters might need to be swayed and where disinformation campaigns, uh, you know, could be successful. That would be my guess. But, you know, it's one of these things where I think it shows why. Mueller was so keen on pressuring Manafort. I mean, he kept squeezing him with those charges. And I think it's because Manafort really holds the keys to the kingdom in terms of a lot of what Russia was trying to do. Um, And it also shows it's a great example that without getting that information, without being able to get hard evidence in the form of testimony, for example, or, or other ways that could be admissible in court, he can't charge Manafort with any kind of conspiracy um, with Russia, even if we have these kind of strange activities that they uncovered.
1: Yeah, I, I we all we don't already know now that Manafort, of course, was promised uh, uh, supposedly by uh, Trump's attorneys that they would be taking care of him and Gates would be taken care of. Um just about uh,
2: Manafort, I have a quick question. Sure. Is was there any testimony that he explained why he had passed the data along? Um, uh, just uh, for funsies? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean,
1: uh, I you know, that's something I don't know offhand. Do you do you do you know offhand, Nasha?
2: I don't know,
0: but remember that it was the sloppy redaction in one of his filings where it was that particular action was mentioned in one of the filings by his own lawyers i suspect and it was related to the the filings that came after Mueller said that he had lied to them in the course of his uh, plea agreement so patty i think that that's what they wanted to find out and i think he was lying to them about it and they knew he was lying to them about it and (laughs) that's why um you know he lost uh Whatever you know deal he had in place, um but yeah, I think that they they were not able to get it from him
1: yeah i I have to say to, from my perspective, just to sort of wrap up what we're thinking about count one for or count one if I kind of such a lawyer uh part one uh, <laughs> I'm so used to talking about indictments part one uh for for today, although I suspect that uh, we're gonna have a lot more to say about it in the future, uh, asha is you know from my perspective one thing that was unfortunate that happened here was that not only did a lot of these details be re- were not only were they revealed in advance but also the expectations were set so such a sky high way in other words such a simplistic uh, picture was painted for everyone that oh there's going to be this proof of conspiracy and there's going to be a conspiracy charge between the russian government and the trump campaign and it's it's all there and it's going to be wrapped up in a bow and i and i i always was as i think every i hope listeners know i was always very skeptical of that and i tried to express that many in multiple mediums both in print and on here but um i think that the the reality of the problems here are very complicated and very disturbing and the fact that you can't wrap it up in some neat conspiracy bow to me makes it even more challenging to know where we go from here.
0: Yes, I I agree with that, and I think you're right that um, the media. I mean, I, I really don't know where to place the blame, you know, because I think people just they you know they watch Law and Order, they watch you know. The FBI shows, so they, they see things in criminal terms. They think that everything gets wrapped up in an hour. Um, bad guy goes to jail, and that's you know the framework that people are used to. Um, but I agree with you. You know, I know that I and, and John Seifer, who you mentioned, and um, Alex Finley, who's another former CIA officer, uh, wrote a couple of pieces that said, look, collusion doesn't have to be criminal. To be a threat. And we explain how this is a slow process of of developing and luring people into doing your bidding uh, without ever saying a word. Um, But I just think that that is a harder thing for people to get their mind around.
1: I agree. I will tell you, for me, I've learned a lot from you on that subject. (laughs) I suspect that we're going to be talking a lot about this in the weeks to come because this is one where um, we're all just starting to digest this, and I think the implications of it will be revealed. Uh, and there's, there's going to be some uh, hearings about this in the uh, upcoming weeks. So thank you very much for joining us again, Asha. You uh, added a lot to this uh, podcast yes, once thank again. You, thank, you. thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast Go to your app and review the podcast and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic.